usually this is an intramural debate. This is a debate between individuals who affirm that salvation comes by faith alone, but now that you're a believer, there's a call to a certain kind of life, a standard of life. And the issue then becomes, what is the standard, the measure, the rule by which we then look for this information for how we now live? And within this uh, group of individuals, the spectrum, wide spectrum of individuals, from those who say, yeah, faith alone in Christ is how someone is saved, and then the entire Bible is still an obligation to every person. So you're saved by faith, not by works, but then you are still obligated to the dietary rules, circumcision, you're still obligated to the feasts and festivals, and to not do them is to be out of step with God. And in fact, some have even said it's a sign that the person is not really a believer. Because if they were really a believer, they would know by the Spirit and through the Word that they should be doing these things. I run into that sometimes. Uh, more common is I run into individuals who say, now a large swath of the Old Testament have been set aside by virtue of explicit New Testament statements, such as the dietary rules in, in Mark. We have, we have that text in uh, Mark chapter 7 where Jesus declares all food to be clean, the book of Acts where Simon Peter sees the picnic blanket coming down, and we have circumcision set aside. And then things like the priestly rules kind of been set aside because the temple was destroyed and Jesus is our high priest. But there's a lot of other things in the Old Testament still in play, like the Decalogue, but then there's other aspects of some Old Testament things like tithe. Uh, there, there may be some other traditions or things like that that also be, are brought into the New Testament because they're not explicitly forbidden. And then there's my, my view, which I think uh, is the view that says the entire Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ, so there's no aspect of Old Testament laws and obligation anymore. It's not to say we can't learn things about God, from the Old Testament now. We still learn lots about his character, and there's still some basic fundamental things that we can look back to the Old Testament and say, God loves it when people have these kinds of attitudes or this kind of approach towards him and towards one another. But in terms of explicit commands, where we say, okay, there's this command in Leviticus chapter whatever, verse seven, there's this statement about food or about clothing, and we are obligated now uh, you know, 3,500 years later, still to follow it. Well, the early church thought that way. Uh, in fact, the early church seems to me that they're really working through this. We have the preaching by Stephen. He gets stoned to death, and then Paul really is ravaging the church. And the immediate response of that is we have the driving out of Jerusalem, these individuals. And one of those people is Philip. Philip winds up in Samaria, and in Samaria, he goes to Samaria, and he shares the gospel, and these people all believe and word gets back to the apostles in Jerusalem. It's like, hey, the Samaritans are believers. And they're like, no way, that can't be. And so they send Peter up there. And like, hey, some of you apostles, go up there and check this out. And they go up there, and when they do, they start speaking in tongues. And Simon Peter's like, oh, dude, this is just like Pentecost for us. So it seems like they, they are authentically believers. We should baptize them. And so they do, and they incorporate them into the family of the church. Now, Samaritans are a little bit unique in that the Samaritans at that day believed in the first five books of the Bible anyway. They were embracers of the books of Moses. They did not like the rest of the Old Testament, but they liked the first five books of the Bible, and they followed most of those traditions anyway. But we start to see the church struggling through this, because right after that, you remember Philip winds up sharing the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch, 
And then we have Simon Peter. He's at uh, Simon the Tanner's house. He's hanging out at an individual who's involved in a occupation that most Jews would have already been a little bit hesitant about. But he's at Simon the Tanner's house, and while he's there, he has this vision of a picnic blanket coming down. There's all kinds of food on it that is predominantly Gentile-type food. And he's like, well, I'm not going to eat lobster. What's, what's wrong uh, with this? And God says, anything I've declared clean is now clean. And so Simon Peter has this vision a few times. And then uh, Cornelius had sent some people to him. And they say, hey, our, our master wants you to come. And he goes to a Gentile house. He enters the Gentile house. That vision allowed Simon Peter to have the comfort of entering this Gentile's house and I don't think Simon Peter ate anything that wasn't kosher, but I think he was hanging out with people who were. And it doesn't seem like the dietary issues come up in this moment. This would have been the perfect time to address it. Simon Peter went to Cornelius's house, but he told him, hey, now that you become a believer in Christ Jesus, you guys need to quit eating lobster, no more bacon. It never comes up in the book of Acts. And so much so that as the initial missionary journeys happen with Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 14, and they go to Galatia, and they're having similar experience to Simon Peter's experience with Cornelius, with uh, Gentile converts to Christ who are coming to faith, they're having the gift of the Holy Spirit, they start walking in faith, they start sharing the gospel, all of this without circumcision, all of this without dietary rules, without clothing, fabric requirements, or feasts or festivals, and the huge debate starts to rage. They're like, well, Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. If these Gentiles are going to come into the Jewish Messiah faith, they need to become fully Jewish Messiah followers. Prior to this, if you had a Gentile convert to Judaism, they, they converted to Judaism by getting circumcised and following Jewish tradition. They couldn't be allowed into the Jewish community as a non-Jewish convert to Judaism without those things. So the default thinking, so this is, this is not a knock on these individuals who are struggling through this. The default thinking was converts to Judaism who are Gentiles go through a series of, uh, of, of practices and changing of approach that is reflected by that. And so when the early church is dealing with it, they're like, ooh, these Gentiles, but they have the gift of the Spirit, like the Samaritans. Are we going to do other things with them now that they're already exhibiting that? And that was the debate.